Field note number 3729. The specimen has a goofy smile on his face. <laughs> Next field note. Uh, field note. It's very, very magical out here. I see a lot of wooden limbs reaching. And then spidery limbs laden. And it's striking because... There's so much snow on any individual single thin branch and the snowflake had to land just perfectly. The water is unfazed, it trickles. The birds seem a bit phased. <laughs> You're a good poet just off the cuff. <laughs> you should write more poetry. You think so? Yeah, you're good. No. I think as the Jane Goodall, your job is also to be like, I need <laughs> you to imagine like I've gone below the lake or whatever, and you want to be like, what's down there? Right? So like, except the lake is, you know, an altered state of consciousness. I feel like you're backseat Jane Goodalling. Right. <laughs> Feeling lost? Then you're in the right place. I'm Amanda Knox. And I'm Christopher Robinson. And this is Labyrinths. There's something magical about a snowy day. The fresh fallen snow changes the contours of reality. Well-trodden paths vanish. New ones emerge. Objects take on novel shapes. Could you also take on a new shape? Find a new path when your snow globe has been shaken up? That metaphor of the shaken snow globe comes to us by way of neuroscientist Robin Carhart-Harris. In part one of this mini-series, The Fungus Effect, author Michael Pollan gave us the lay of the land on the current psychedelic renaissance, much of which is the result of pioneering research into how substances like psilocybin affect the brain and how they can be useful tools for mental health and well-being. Dr. Carhart Harris is one of the researchers leading that charge. He formerly headed up the Center for Psychedelic Research at Imperial College London and is now the Ralph Metzner Distinguished Professor of Neurology and Psychiatry and Director of the Psychedelics Division Neuroscape at the University of California, San Francisco. The journey that brought me here involved a little bit of experimentation in my teens, which introduced me to psychedelics, and then a deep interest in psychology, I suppose, like many young people wanting to understand myself better, and doing a degree in psychology and then a master's in depth psychology, psychoanalysis and such like. And it was during that that I discovered literature on LSD being used in psychotherapy. And then I, you know, it was like a dog with a bone. <laughs> and that was it. And I never looked back really. And, and that's what I wanted to study. So I did everything I could to try and do that. And I did a PhD in psychopharmacology and that opened the door for me to be a researcher in this field. The first study I did was with psilocybin, found in so-called magic mushrooms. And the choice of psilocybin was 
in a sense, because it wasn't called LSD. I know other researchers <laughs> joke about that, but the stigma is so intense and was especially so mid 2000s. Stigma was so strong for LSD, and, and most people hadn't heard of psilocybin then. So we put together a protocol to do some dose finding work to find a good dose to then take to a brain scanner. And the brain scanning modality is called functional magnetic resonance imaging. It's a method to look deep into the brain with quite a high degree of spatial resolution and look at all the different regions and the activity there and how they talk to each other. There's a lot of different analyses we can run on those those rich data. And so that was my way in. And it, yeah, it took me a little while to get to be able to do that. Mm -hmm. As you can imagine, it's not a trivial thing. And so required some funding from a visionary philanthropist, Amanda Fielding of the Beckley Foundation, who I owe quite a lot to for helping open that door for me. And then David Nutt at the University of Bristol at the time was a professor of psychopharmacology there. So it was that combination that gave me that special opportunity to do this. So we started off and published our first major paper in 2012, took a little while to do the research, as it always does, and then write it up. Um, but that went into a top scientific journal called PNAS. And off the back of that, we started to look at depression. And that's kind of a, an important direction that we've gone in since, is to do some quite groundbreaking research looking at psilocybin for depression. Yeah, that's something that has interested me. I'm curious to know what you can tell us about what happens to the brain when a person experiences trauma or is experiencing depression and how you found that psychedelics and particularly psilocybin impact or can be used to treat those symptoms in the brain. Yeah. So what we seem to see in a, a range of different mental illnesses is, and you can see this psychologically in a sense, it's more intuitive to think of it psychologically, but we also see parallels of it in brain activity. But ways of thinking and then patterns of brain activity that map onto these become reinforced in certain mental illnesses. You kind of get stuck in the particular pattern and you see that pattern in the brain, but you also see it in the way that you think and you behave. So in depression, you get stuck in this negative, pessimistic pattern of thinking, and it's hard to get out of it, and it's easy to get sucked into it. And other disorders could be eating disorder, you know, it's a similar kind of thing. You reinforce a certain way of looking at yourself and then behaving, and it is very, very difficult to budge. And then similar thing in addiction. So there's this kind of rooting of this kind of entrenchment of thought and behavior that happens in mental illness. And we do see correlates of that in the brain. And so what psychedelics do is that they kind of introduce a, it's like a temporary storm of sorts. It's chaotic for the period of time that you're under the influence of the drug, but it's also releasing. Mm. And it seems that that combination can be therapeutic. We have a paper in the New England Journal of Medicine, which is a top medical journal, and it reports on our latest work, which is a two-group double-blind randomized control trial. So you don't know what you're going to get, but it's one of two things. And in the psilocybin condition, you get two big doses of psilocybin, 
alongside six weeks of placebo capsules every day. And then if you go into what we call the escitalopram arm, which is a conventional selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor antidepressant, a like Prozac-like classic antidepressant, you get six weeks of that every day and two very, very low doses of psilocybin. So it's a kind of head-to-head psilocybin magic mushroom therapy versus being on an SSRI for six weeks. So the remission rates are like 60% Hmm. with psilocybin versus 30% with the SSRI. Wow. So twice as high. And remission means you don't have depression anymore at that time point. And then response rates, 70%. Responses are halving of your depression score. Hmm. That's 70% with psilocybin and 50% with the SSRI. That's exciting. It is, isn't it? Yeah. So for me, this is great because it can give people hope when they're forlorn about life and then they seek treatment through their doctor and it's an SSRI and it doesn't work, you know, now there's an option that seems to work better. We've heard you say um, something about how this increased plasticity could also potentially lead to reinforcing behavior patterns rather than changing them. Can you elaborate on how increased plasticity might lead to a sort of deeper entrenching of a behavior pattern you may want to change? Yeah, I suppose the darkest example of this is to think of like military misuse of psychedelics, like the old MK Ultra stuff, CIA giving LSD to people and trying to, you know, control their mind and such like. Jeez. We don't know what actually happened in any detail, whether it was effective or not. But a bit like the accelerated learning, like, you know, learning simple cues like a stimulus is aversive you could probably try and entrain someone in a particular way and harness the plasticity for the sake of learning something. That learning would have to be something somewhat simple and like implicit. It couldn't be like learning, you know, a mathematical equation or solution or something. You know, that level of analytical thinking is negatively affected by a psychedelic. Right. But low level, implicit learning, associations can be enhanced. Hmm. So it all depends what you do with that kind of blank slate in a way. Has anyone done any research into what would happen if you gave someone psychedelics and then put one of those like language learning listening audio CDs on? <laughs> <laughs> like it could yeah. come out fluent? Like, <laughs> <I'm>... <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you know, it's not such a crazy idea. In fact, it's a good one. And well, you're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> it's a great idea. Thank you. I'll use that one. <laughs> Not to credit you. Yeah, they tried to do that with microdosing. And whether they went ahead with it in the end, I'm not sure. But the field is full of these anecdotes of people learning juggling and that kind of thing. There's a great cartoon online about this baseball player who took some LSD and didn't realize he had a big game Oh no! and was under the influence when he was playing and he was a pitcher and he actually threw a, do they call it a no-hitter? A no-hitter, yeah. Wow. Yeah, yeah. And he said he just got into the zone and he was in the flow. One of the most interesting things about this research for us is that it's not just the immediate, but the long-term benefits, the lasting benefits for things like depression. And it makes us curious about what is known about the potential negatives. We know that the set and setting, the context, the container, as you phrased it, 
is super important for having a positive experience and a therapeutic one that has lasting impacts. And we know that if that container isn't there or if you have the wrong container, the wrong set and setting, people can have really negative experiences on these substances. Is there any knowledge or data or research about whether or not a sort of negative experience in a psychedelic trip has long-lasting negative effects as a sort of mirror version of the long-lasting positive effects? Especially when you think we know that negative experiences can have lasting, entrenched negative behavioral or neurological patterns as a response to it. So we're just curious if that's also been shown. Yeah, it's difficult to show because no one would want to do a control study like that. And so fair. <laughs> provide a really awful set and setting. But a kegger. I don't know what that is. <laughs> a frat party. You know, yeah, it's the, the, okay. yeah, the worst place to possibly okay, do it. Yeah. People do that in the wild, don't they? I mean, people do take psychedelics at parties and festivals, and sometimes things do go awry. I'd certainly heard the stories. One of our big questions for Dr. Carhart Harris was how his research showing such positive results might impact a curious and enthusiastic population that's still waiting for the laws to catch up with the science. Could these promising results in controlled settings lead to reckless use in the wild? And actually, over the last 10 years, first-time use of LSD has increased tenfold. Hmm. So more and more people are taking psychedelics. And so why not provide some guidance Mm. that can help keep them safe? Now, that's not promoting illegal use. It's just saying if people are going to do this, then at least let them have access to experts informed, scientifically informed best practice. Right. So we do collect data naturalistically, as you call it. Hmm. We've got a system called MyDelica, which is being developed for that purpose to collect data on psychedelic use in the wild, M-Y-D-E-L-I-C-A. And it also combines with a bit of, well, actually quite a lot of harm reduction advice to try and keep people safe if they're going to trip through their own devices. So in a sense, I'm doing something to try and help there. And it's one of the major dilemmas with doing this research is that you can do a little trial in like 20 people or 30 in our more recent one, and you see a great effect and you see psilocybin looking better than a conventional treatment. And then the world hears about it and then everyone wants this. Well, they kind of want it now. And then you're kind of stuck because the situation is that these drugs are illegal to possess in most places. So very, very difficult situation. So I don't know what to say other than I I understand uh, (laughs) the kind of dilemma and at least this harm reduction effort is some way to help people if they're going to take matters into their own hands. Researching how psychedelics affect things like depression and anxiety through controlled studies and through gathering data from psychedelic use in the wild is just part of Dr. Carhart Harris's work. Equally important is understanding the neurochemistry. We've heard you talk about the um, importance of the serotonin 2A receptor and its relationship with stress and sort of theorizing what the natural evolutionary function of it might be. And 
I want to <laughs> maybe rephrase to you how we've kind of understood, understood that, just so you can tell us if we're if As we're getting non-brain it. Non-brain <laughs> people. <Yeah. laughs> sure. It sounds like the brain is always looking for cognitive shortcuts to reduce the burden of processing information from the environment. And so we develop habits, both neuronal and behavioral patterns that function well most of the time to allow us to navigate our context. But then sometimes that doesn't function correctly. Those habits lead us into situations where things aren't going well and stress goes up. And then that upregulates the serotonin 2A receptor, which increases neural plasticity, which allows us to be more sensitive to our context and hopefully create a more nuanced response to our situation. Does that sound right? Yeah, it's a pretty good take on it. Yeah. So it turns out that it looks like the aspects of the serotonin system that psychedelics work on. So the few kind of jargony terms here, serotonin being a neurotransmitter and neuromodulator, a chemical in our brains that kind of tunes brain function in different ways. And so these 2A receptors are proteins that sit in the membrane of neurons, brain cells for the sake of simplicity. And the 2A receptors are one of like 14 of these different serotonin receptors, and they each tune brain function in in different ways. So the short story is, yes, 2A receptors when activated, usually by serotonin, but if you take a psychedelic, by the psychedelic, that's what they do. They hijack this aspect of the serotonin system and they're like serotonin imposters in a way, Mm -hmm. pretend to be serotonin. And they're they're particularly imposters at this receptor where they have a high binding affinity. And this receptor, it activates plasticity. And that most simply defined as the ability to adapt Mm -hmm. and change. And the link with stress is a bit like framing the question, why do we have this system? Why is it evolved? What's its function? And it transpires that during conditions of adversity, during conditions in which we feel stressed, this system does indeed upregulate or Hmm. become kind of primed. And then you throw in some more stress, like an acute stressor, and you release serotonin itself, and there's a kind of perfect storm, the two come together, Mm. and you have like a naturally occurring psychedelic experience. A bit of recent evidence shows that these 2A receptors are actually involved in the expansion of the brain itself, Mm. the expansion of the cortex, and what sets us apart as weird animals is the fact that we have so many neurons, and particularly in the cortex massively expanded relative to our nearest evolutionary neighbors, like 10 times as large in certain Hmm. parts of the cortex, the expansion. And that happens early on in the fetal brain. What activates this expansion are these things called basal progenitor cells, which are like neural stem cells. They're like pre-neurons. And it seems there's a pretty specific relationship between 2A signaling these very receptors that are the key ones to how psychedelics work. If you block them, you don't trip, you don't have a psychedelic experience. Mm-hmm. These are the ones that engage the what we call proliferation of these neural stem cells, which is, hmm. is the event that needs to happen for our brains to expand like they do. So the authors of that work have said explicitly that this links 
the serotonin today receptor that psychedelics work on to the evolution of the human brain. Cool. I've heard people say that the infant mind, the infant experience of reality may have some similarities to the psychedelic experience. Can you speak to that at all? Yeah, there's a few bits of evidence that suggests the brain, if you image the brain and brain function under a psychedelic, it looks like the brain in like an infant. Mm. It's less chopped up into specific modules doing specialized things. And similarly, you know, if you are engaging something that happens in the embryonic brain by the 2A receptor, when you activate this system later on in life, like in adulthood, you get something that's kind of different but related to what you see in the embryonic brain. Like you see accelerated growth, but it's more at the synaptic level. Mm. Um, it's like the connections between neurons rather than the actual growth of neurons themselves. Does all of this and the fact that the human mind just compared to our evolutionary neighbors is so much more complex, does that make studying psychedelics difficult? Because one could propose a study where you go into an animal shelter where there are animals who have developed a rigidity of mindset due to stress and animal PTSD, basically. I know dogs that have been adopted that are afraid of specific kinds of people. And you might be able to propose a study where you're like, well, let's give these dogs some psilocybin <laughs> and see if they feel better. <laughs> but also, it, can you do that and be able to say something about brains? Or is the research sort of needing to be grounded in the human brain? Yeah, I guess the most obvious thing is that we can talk and describe the experience, at least afterwards, mm. maybe not during a trip. But, <laughs> and so, you know, we get poetic works like The Doors of Perception, Aldous Huxley and Michael Pollan's brilliant book. And we can do subjective ratings, you know, you can mm. rate the intensity of your mystical type experience and ego dissolution and all these abstract things. Whereas animals just behave, or at least that's the readout that we go by. So it turns out the most basic readout of an animal tripping is head shakes. Mm. They call them wet dog shakes, you know, like trying to shake something off. <laughs> <laughs> probably, the, probably the trip, you know. Yeah. So you see that quite reliably, and it's actually a relatively reliable index of an animal like a rat mm. on a psychedelic. So we get more rudimentary readout, but you can look at things like learning, mm -hmm. low-level learning, like, learning that a certain stimulus is aversive, like if it happens, you're going to have an aversive air puff in the eye. Hmm. And so animals, it turns out, learn these kind of cues more quickly under some LSD and other psychedelics. Hmm. Hmm. So it's another bit of evidence to link this receptor to plasticity and learning and adapting. Yeah. I'm reminded of those studies with learned helplessness and dogs. Mm. I'm sure you're familiar with those. You know, you create the shock panel, whatever they did, it sounds kind of horrible, but creating the scenario where the dog doesn't realize it can save itself. By like jumping over yeah, a little barrier right. or something. It's been taught to be helpless in its situation. And I'm wondering if there's been any research into whether or not LSD or, or psilocybin or something like that could through, I guess, extinction learning? Is that what you call this? Like unlearning a behavioral pattern? Yeah. Is there any research with extinction learning with animals? Because I want to help that yeah. dog. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. 
we all do and none of us really want to do that kind of research yeah. as well and thankfully you know I'm, I'm lucky that i don't but yes it has been done and the effect is what you would think hmm. increase extinction learning with a psychedelic and this kind of unlearning is as useful as learning something new is unlearning something old if that old thing was something like an addiction right so it's a similar kind of principle this window for change yeah i think the reason we're primarily interested in that is that there's a cultural block that has been in place probably since timothy leary's days and i think people have this notion that not only is there a high likelihood which i think is false if you have the right container but there's this sort of notion out in the world that there's a high likelihood of having a really negative experience, but not only that, but that it can affect you for a lifetime. Mm. You'll be having acid flashbacks or something like that. And so that is, I think, really scary to people. Mm. And if you could somehow show that the worst possible outcome here is for the duration of your experience, you have a negative experience, but it's not going to permanently damage you. Maybe it would reduce some of that fear people have about this. Yeah. Well, I don't want to present a misleading picture because the risk, in a sense, is real. I mean, if you have a very intense experience and you have that hyperplasticity hmm. and you have an awful, awful context, like something traumatic, then like post-traumatic stress disorder, it's possible that when you experience a traumatic episode, your body and brain engages in a way that is like a naturally occurring psychedelic experience and what's going on in your context gets kind of stamped in because of the hyper alert and hyper plastic mm. state that you're in for you know evolutionary reasons we should be very sensitive to our context in conditions like that mm. and when we do our research we tend to do it in a therapeutic context with care and preparation and screening and aftercare as well and so there, even though you might have a really difficult experience, we have the right therapeutic container to help you grow from the experience in a similar way that there's such a thing called post-traumatic growth. Hmm. You can have a traumatic episode and yet not develop PTSD, but instead, right. you know, have some kind of epiphany and go on to live a fulfilling and a happy life. Yeah, that definitely resonates with That's me. That's you, the description <laughs> of you from prison. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, it's funny because I feel like it's not a given that you're going to come out of a traumatic experience like imprisonment with something bad. And actually, a lot of times it's the set that you bring into it. And I found that a lot of the people that I was spending time with in prison were sort of set up to get the worst out of prison because they were already people who were struggling with mental illness and addiction and mm. PTSD because a lot of them had already been victims of crime. And so here they were, these people who were making bad decisions that got them into prison in the first place, and then they go through yet another traumatic experience, mm. and it only made things worse. Whereas here I was coming from a loving family, nothing bad had ever happened to me. Suddenly this crazy thing happened really close to me, but I didn't even have time to process that before I was put into prison. And mm. meanwhile, my entire prison experience is being at the very least supported by my family as I was getting through it. So I was bringing a very different set mm. to that setting. Mm. And I think I got something psychologically different out of it because of that. Being in the world of criminal justice, I'm just really, really interested in how psychedelics can 
be implemented to not only treat those who have the deep psychological traumas of having committed crimes and then therefore in prison and so have these like sort of entrenched behavioral patterns that are not helpful to them and to others, but also just thinking about how it might increase public safety. Like we're talking about the betterment of society because there are just weller people in society. And a lot of the people that I met in prison were making bad choices because bad things had happened to them already. And so my curiosity in all of this goes with both knowing lots of people who've been wrongly convicted, who are grappling with that psychologically and the sort of learned helplessness that arises from that, but also just the learned helplessness of guilty people. And there's a sense of if you could shake their snow globe if you could shake their snow globe maybe there's another way and like maybe that would reduce recidivism rates and like so these are all things that i'm bubbling around in my head well there's there's a lot of potential there and some famous work was attempted in that space by the likes of timothy leary and ralph metzler and ramdas at Harvard, this prison experiment, the Concord prison experiment, they tried to go into the high security prison there and work towards sort of psychedelic therapy, assisted improvements in recidivism. So yeah, I guess at the end of the day, it's about trying to understand the things that influence the way we behave, having a broader conscious awareness of oneself and one's past less likely to fall into the traps that otherwise we fall into when we're less conscious. Everyone we talked to for this miniseries was keen to avoid the mistakes of the previous psychedelic era. And a big part of that is paying attention to the indigenous practices that the early Western psychonauts ignored. Not to excuse them, but one reason they did so is because those practices, however important, were interwoven with native mythology and religion, which, from a materialist scientific perspective, is as unproven and unlikely to exist as Zeus or Shiva or Bigfoot. How does a contemporary neuroscientist like Carhart Harris find value in that historical knowledge, given his commitment to a scientific worldview? One of the things that I was really, really touched by was when you talked about how this experience, the psychedelic experience, can be as impactful and meaningful as falling in love or giving birth to your first children. And I know that historically, indigenous knowledge and practices has really harnessed that potential. How do you feel you've been able to inform your own practices and research from that historical use of psychedelics? Yeah, well, it's absolutely true that psychedelics aren't a new thing in a sense. Certain cultures have been using psychedelic plant medicines for thousands of years. And so in a sense, the West are kind of late to the party. Right. But I guess we bring the methods and the advancement of modern science. And so maybe we bring something to the party. But there's a lot to learn from the wisdom teachings. The wisdom sort of seems to work in a somewhat different way to analytical, logical thinking. It's more basic and Mm. emotional. Yet it's still like learning through experience. 
it's just like experience over generations and mm. very very high level but also basic like fundamental learnings mm. about people and human nature and and actually i think to say psychiatry could look at itself and feel a little embarrassed in a way that it hasn't done a good enough job mm. if the leading tools that we have for treating mental illness are being on a drug all the time every day right feels like quite a blunt tool you know not that sophisticated really whatever the pharma companies might want to tell you and you compare that with the wisdom teachings that you hear in certain cultures that live in harmony with nature and don't exploit resources and the way that we do in the west it's a very different kind of approach and yet those are approaches for wellness aren't they yeah and those cultures seem to be pretty healthy when when they can operate and they're not being exploited and so it's a funny old thing i think some kind of marriage of sort of wisdom teachings and science is an exciting area that could be catalyzed by yeah, the ways that these substances have been used in indigenous cultures are so different than how they first started getting experienced in the West. The molecule came, but the ritualistic cultural elements didn't in that initial importing phase. But the Western psychological model that we have for this now, it seems to me like you can't just directly port over the ceremonial methods and so forth into our Western culture. But you can learn some things from the abstract structure of how those substances are used and figure out what the shape of our container ideally looks like in the context of our own culture. I'm curious how that set and setting, what you imagine that looks like, but also on this broader cultural, political, societal level, because we're all in the context of a society that is itself a sort of macro setting in which a substance like this may get consumed. Mm. And what is our current setting like? And is it good or bad? What do we need to change about that in order to get the most use out of this? Yeah. Well, it's a rich space, isn't it? Because, you know, the cultural container for a long time, at least in recent decades, since the 60s, has been psychedelics are dangerous drugs that are mm. controlled in the highest bracket of harm and maximum penalties if you're found to be taking or supplying these drugs. And you compare that to a cultural container like ayahuasca use by the Shipibo people in the Amazon, where this is part of the healthy lifestyle and living in, in harmony with one's surroundings and such like. So we have a very different cultural container. Now that's changing. Um, there are things like the decriminalization initiatives happening in the states and legalization initiatives in Oregon. And so there are these progressive changes. And then you have the medical track with companies trying to achieve licensing for psychedelic therapy for these indications. And also not-for-profits, MAPS are doing this mm -hmm. with MDMA for PTSD. So it's a changing cultural climate, and I suppose that's the cultural setting. And then the set is our mindset. It's what we bring to the experience. And so I think with improving education, that's improving too. I think it's probably different to what it was like in the 60s where maybe there was some escapism and psychedelics were tied up with politics in some way. Or, you know, when you think of Timothy Leary and yeah. the counterculture, it, it did seem tightly tied up with politics. And these days it seems more about self-development, self-understanding, 
I think people are more clued up when they take psychedelics. Mm. Maybe that's just the circles I move in, but I would hope that it goes in that direction. Yeah, this greater belief in the betterment of well people. Mm. Do you think there's a possibility for these substances to have a dramatic change at the societal level? I'm thinking about how something like social media in the span of a decade has really pushed people into both tribalism and a kind of egocentric narcissism, mm. reinforcing our sort of worst tendencies, getting us into a frame of like continual judgment of each other and ourselves. And from my experience, things like psilocybin militate in the opposite direction and they reduce the narcissistic ego side of ourselves. They connect us back to nature. They decrease things like tribalism on a personal level. Can that fix our broken society? <laughs> <laughs> do you know, I think it depends more on what we do with these tools than it being an intrinsic property of the tools themselves. I think people can still be polarized and be, you know, microdosing on their psychedelic or whatever. Mm. And they're getting, you know, wrapped up in some kind of political perspective mm. and going down a rabbit hole and the classic kind of rabbit hole phenomenon that we get in this digital age that's echo chamber effect and all, all you're hearing is your preferred side of the political debate so i do worry about that and you see things like uh, what's he called QAnon charlotte <laughs> and yet apparently a proponent of psychedelics and how does that happen and so it's interesting to consider whether that was a combination of plasticity mm. and and that kind of echo chamber effect yeah. in the sort of alt-right populist way so not necessarily. And, and so that's why I think it's important that we just see psychedelics as tools, mm. like powerful tools, so an opportunity, but the potential for healthy societies depends much more on, I think, what we do with those tools. So bringing in things like tried and tested wisdom mm. teachings, mm -hmm. I think can be a good way to go. Yeah, it's fascinating to think that this tool that technically humanity has had for so long and has so much experience with could have great potential for society. And there are many, many obstacles that go towards using it. Meanwhile, social media was just sort of thrown out there <laughs> and with, with no sort of thought as to how it too is a tool that could radically change society. Mm. Speaking of obstacles, I'm curious to know what kinds of obstacles you've faced and continue to face when conducting your research? Like, is anyone trying to get in the way of you being able to do studies? Are there any forces attempting to undermine your work? And if so, how are you confronting those forces? Well, that's an interesting question because the obstacles have changed. And if we count my PhD, I've been researching in and around this area for 15 years. And at the beginning, the forces of opposition were around stigma hmm. and fear uh, linked to the stigma because there wasn't any really significant research in this area. People just thought it was out of bounds. Hmm. Like, you can't go there. You couldn't possibly do an LSD brain imaging study. But just incrementally, we looked at the evidence and then laid it out to ethics bodies and such like. And when you, we did that, it looked quite reasonable that we could do this work. And so you start building a bit of momentum and other teams around the world start doing this. Hopkins, for example, 
And that's the way it's gone. And, and so I think we moved things along in terms of the stigma and the perception mm. because we've built up quite a bit of evidence now. We can do this work safely. They are very interesting and informative tools to study consciousness, for example, and they may have this remarkable therapeutic potential. So that's been a change that's happened in like 15 years or less hmm. with, you know, an exponential kind of quality to it where it's sort of more recently really started to take off. Hmm. So now the obstacles are different and funding was a classic one. All of this research has been floated through philanthropy. And so we owe a huge amount and the field does. And I think the actual medical development will owe a huge amount on just people giving money charitably. Mm. But I think now that's changing because there's commercial buy-in. Hmm. And let's hope it doesn't have a negative impact. I hope that mainstream funders start to support this area because they haven't on both sides of the Atlantic, mm -hmm. that nothing in the States and very little in the UK as well. So the obstacles in a sense, are, I think Michael Pollan touches on one of them, which is excessive exuberance. <laughs> like you know, it's too good. Yeah. <laughs> And, and maybe like the politicization of psychedelics could be tied up with that. Like they're a tool for the activist in a way. And, but it's that problematic energy that can sometimes be tied up with uh, sort of angry activism. Yeah. And then on the other side, if psychedelic medicine sort of lost its soul through selling out commercially, uh, that would be another sad story. So there's this interesting tightrope we're walking at the moment. Is it important to be focused on treating maladies as opposed to the sort of betterment of well people model? Is it going to be easier to get funding to advance the research if it is focused on like, look what this does for depression, look what this does for anxiety? Can you get funding for a study where it, you're just taking self-reported healthy people who don't say they have a history of depression and just what can it do for them? Yeah, so you can't easily win mainstream funding for that kind of research. And I've been on the wrong end of that. Mm. It's much easier. It's very, very difficult. The only mainstream funding we won at Imperial was for a depression trial in treatment-resistant depression. Mm. So yes, when the need is great and other treatments aren't working, then they can step in and provide some support. But it, it's required philanthropy money to do research in healthy volunteers. But I would say I think some of our best works in healthy volunteers, mm -hmm. looking at the process of change, doing brain scanning before and after, and also using a more easily tolerated brain scanning approach called EEG mm. during the experience, so looking at brain waves. And so that's something we've done in healthy volunteers, and we've learned a huge amount doing that approach. And you see them. Changes in mental health of similar magnitude to what you see in depression. It's just you're seeing improvements in well-being right. and flourishing and self-esteem and compassion, all these good things, you know. So um, mental health is a continuum and it's a false dichotomy to talk of people who are suffering from mental illness and those who are well. There's no clear cutoff there. So if psychedelic therapy can improve mental health across the board, then that's the way it is. That's what the evidence seems to indicate, and work by Carhart Harris and others providing this evidence has led activists across the country to push for the legalization and regulation of psychedelics. 
Next time, in part three of our mini-series, we'll be talking to the people behind Measure 109 in Oregon, which passed in the 2020 election, and for the first time anywhere, laid the groundwork for legal psilocybin therapy. In the meantime, engage those serotonin 2A receptors and let your ego get lost with us. Find us on Twitter, at Amanda Knox. At Man Under Bridge. And if all this talk of psychedelics has you seeing stars, we hope you'll share with us five of them. And if you've already rated this podcast, please tell a friend, tell a nemesis, tell a stranger. We're lost without your word of mouth. This episode was written, edited, and sound designed by us, with theme music by Josh Budo-Karp. <laughs>